Testament. Revelation and chapter 21. This will be part one of chapter 21 because there's a lot to it. But as we've read and studied in the book of Revelation, we've seen God being the church, uh, or excuse me, the leader of the churches, the Savior, the Messiah of the churches. We've seen him be God over tribulation as he's trying to reach the heathen nations, those who are still rebelling against him. Even in the tribulation, he's reaching out his hand to save those who are willing to humble themselves. And yet, um, once the tribulation is complete, and he judges Satan, and he judges the many who have followed him. Chapter 21 kind of changes course, and it says that after he separated the sheep from the goats, those who have become his followers versus those who are still staunchly against him, it says there will be the great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20 of Revelation. And at that point... When death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, the second death, uh, verse 15 of chapter 20 says, anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so this is the final judgment. This is separating the, between those who have bowed the knee to Jesus and those who will be um, judged by him. And then in chapter 21, in verse 1, it says, now I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So there's a new heaven and a new earth. And this new heaven and new earth are described in uh, Isaiah chapter 65. And he says, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. And he uses the word create in Isaiah 65, verse 17. And the, the word there he uses for create is in the Hebrew, bara, which is the word to create something from nothing. It's not like when you and I build something and we go buy materials and then we change the shape or we manufacture them somehow and build something out of it. It's actually where God takes nothing and makes something. And so God's not going to reform the earth. It's actually going to say in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, that when God's face is revealed that the heavens and the earth will flee from his presence because there's no place for them to go to hide because it's tainted with sin. But what happens is that God, with fervent heat, according to 2 Peter in chapter 3, he's not only going to judge the ungodly, he's going to judge everything that's been tainted with sin. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 10, it says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so with that being the idea that we know that the world as we know it Though we can try to be good stewards of it, it's all going to burn anyway. So anything that we can build, any way we can try to save the planet, ultimately, God's not saying that we should be those that just, you know, burn everything and cause there to be great pollution. But what I would say from this is that 
everything that we can build on this earth will be destroyed. Everything that we are making this earth will not last. It will perish in fire. God's going to essentially take it, crumble it up like a piece of paper, throw it away, and start fresh. But that word bara, to create something from nothing, is actually the same exact word used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where God says, in the beginning, where it says there, in the beginning, God bara, God created. And so it's that same idea. God's going to start fresh. But there's also something in this particular verse that says, when he said that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Well, why is that? Well, in Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, it actually says that the sea is where he has cast our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no more iniquities. There's no more of our transgressions. It's all been cast into a place that will no longer exist. That itself will be burned up. All of the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. But what else about seas? Seas divide nations and cultures and tribes and tongues. And what the Bible teaches is that he's recon reconciling us to himself. And he's reconciling all of us to each other. And so the sea not only divides nations, tribes, and tongues, he's going to unify us all into one man, up into the stature of Jesus Christ. But then the sea is also, <laughs> the way I'm going to describe it, is like a salty septic. You know, some of you have septic tanks on your property, right? We don't like to talk about that. That's why we bury it. That's why we leave it under the ground. We don't even like to go around the vent. You know, we, we throw Redex or whatever into it so we don't ever have to dig it up. But a, think about it. Our water system is that. The water all falls from the sky. It lands somewhere. It runs downhill. That's the number one rule of plumbing. All, all things run downhill, and they go down to the sea, sea level. Well, have you ever thought it interesting that the sea is full of salt? What do we use salt for? Salt cures meat. It can also heal a wound, though it burns. But salt also purifies. And so in the right content, salt actually cleanses. And so I believe that the sea is actually there to purify the, the water that runs all the way downhill and then goes back into the water cycle. It goes back up into the clouds, and then eventually it comes down. And so um, just a food, food for thought, although that's the wrong word, is that the sea is like a septic system. <laughs> Not really food for thought. That's gross. So verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city. So he sees a new heaven and a new earth, and then it zooms in on the fact that he sees a holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And so verse 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So the new Jerusalem. So we have the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, new tabernacle. He's going to describe these things, and it's like he's zooming in on the central focus, which is where God dwells with men and he interacts with us. What was the point of the tabernacle? In the Old Testament, there was one place that you could go to interact with God. No no other temple, one place. And so the idea is, is that this meeting place is a place that's prepared. And in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 6, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that when I get there, I will be there and you can't go with me. But when you go, I will be with you and you will be with me, right? And so uh, then John chapter 1 actually says that, um, oh, I won't get there yet. I'm, I'm rushing ahead. So he's prepared a place, but this place that he's describing is a promised place. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about Abraham, who was the father of the faith. And in verse 8, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. So he went out, not knowing where he was going. Now, you would be very quickly to think that the place that was promised to him was the land of promise, the land of Canaan. But the writer of Hebrews goes on from here, And says, by faith, he dwelled in the land of promise as if it was a foreign country. And he dwelled in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So he never dwelled in a city. He was always in the outskirts, dwelling in tents, which are temporary dwellings. And then it says, for he waited for the city. Now, if you remember the the interaction that Abraham had with Lot. He said, Lot, you can pick whatever land you want to go to if we need to separate. They were running out of herds land. And so because of that, he said, you pick first. And Lot picked the well-watered plains of the Jordan that were close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham remained kind of a non-city dweller. He was more a rural person. He might be finding some land out away from the city. But it says here, here's why he wasn't living in the city. He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He didn't want to dwell in the city of man. He wanted to dwell in the city of God. And that is something that he never got to dwell in this side of heaven. This city that we're describing in Revelation 21, that's the city that he was looking for. That is the city that he believed was promised to him. That is the city that he would settle for nothing less than. That was the city he was living for. That was the city that he was looking forward to. And so because of that, all the way up to him getting to that city, he dwelled in temporary dwellings. Now, he was also rich. Abraham was a man of faith, but he was also a man of riches. So he could have lived anywhere he wanted. And yet he deferred so that he could look for the city. He didn't want to trust in a city 
other than the one that God made. What's interesting about that is if you turn just a few pages back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, it talks about the fact that in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus was better than any of the Jewish traditions and religious system. So he talks about Jesus being a high priest. Well, the tabernacle is one thing, but you couldn't, you and I couldn't go in there. You had to be a high priest from a certain family, from a certain descendant, from Aaron. So in order to go in and see and dwell among God and speak with him and hear from him inside the one place you could meet with him, you had to be a high priest. And yet what Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 says is this is the main point of the things that we are writing. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister or servant of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. So we not only have a, a city whose builder and maker is not man, but God, but now we have a tabernacle, a meeting place with God, which the Lord erected, not man. Again, so the same idea, zooming in from the earth itself to the city itself and then to the, taber- the meeting place itself, whose city, uh, whose foundations were not erected by man, but by God. And so all of this to say, it's a prepared place, it's a promised place, it's a meeting place foretold through various times. God has also always desired to meet with you and I. He's always desired, not just, wow, all of a sudden, is that me? Is that my ears messed up this morning? Okay, all of a sudden it's working. Thank you, Lord. I felt like I woke up this morning, my ears were plugged, and I was like, man, what's going on? And so all morning I'm sitting here listening to the, of course, it's, we're going to do a little exercise real quick because this is driving me nuts. So, Jesse, you guys can all cover your ears. I'm serious. Cover your ears. And we're going to do this thing that Dave showed me. All right. So I'm going to go. And then it's going to be fixed. All right. There we go. Thank you, Lord. It wasn't as loud as I thought it would be. And now I don't feel like I have to shout. And it's still doing it. Well, we're having some technical difficulties this morning. But we will play through. It's like golf. It's like a bad game of golf. Just keep playing. So um, a place that's prepared, I know it's still doing it. I can't do anything about it right now. I, yes, I, it's a rechargeable battery. I don't know what to do. It, it'll, hey, Dave, it's really okay. We can try one more time. I'm going to do it. I didn't warn everybody yet. All right. <laughs> you guys are so gracious. <sighs> Lord Jesus, come back. Light momentary afflictions, right? So God's always desired to meet with us. And if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 25, this is one of the beginning places. What, what happened in Genesis 1? Genesis 3. We broke fellowship. God provided fellowship. We broke it. 
by doing what? Sinning. So death to fellowship with God happened in Genesis chapter 3. But then in Exodus chapter 25, God did something special. He came up with this idea, a meeting place, and it came in the place of a tabernacle. So in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The word dwell there means tabernacle, that I may tabernacle among them. Verse 29, or chapter 29, verse 45. Here comes your Bible calisthenics this morning. Exodus 25, verse 49, 29, verse 45. It says there, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may tabernacle among them. I am the Lord their God. Well, then turn forward to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11. The same idea. Verse 11 says, I will set my tabernacle among you. I will dwell among you is what he's saying. And my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. So then fast forward, Ezekiel, get a little further along. The prophets, if you get to Isaiah, go to Jeremiah, go past that, you'll get to Ezekiel in chapter 37. I know this is all your favorite book. Everybody loves the visions and the dreams that Ezekiel gets. Ezekiel 37, verse 27. It says, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. They shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify or set apart Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever, not temporarily, but forevermore. And so then turn to chapter 48 of the same book in verse 35. The very last verse of the book says, all the way around shall be, and it gives a measurement of the tabernacle. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. So God's presence promised. So then turn with me to a more well-known chapter in John chapter 1. You guys are troopers. You're doing good. John chapter 1. So in John chapter 1, a very well-known passage, says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And he, no longer an object, but a person, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Then it talks about John the Baptist proclaiming about this same person, the, the light of the world. In verse 10, he was in the world, speaking of Jesus. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So he's talking about on the macro level. The world was made through him, 
The world did not know him. So then he zooms in, verse 11, he came to his own, his set-apart, sanctified people, the Israelites. And his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So when someone says, well, we're all children of God, I would argue and say, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in him, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we who are born a second time are the children of God. But then look at this verse, verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he came and dwelled among us. He tabernacled among us. And that's when he started. Remember he said, John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is drawing near. And then Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is here. So the kingdom is a person and the kingdom is a kingdom at the same time. And this kingdom is among us because Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God with us. And so all of that to say, now go back to Revelation in 21, verse um, 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will tabernacle with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And then it says this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So it's a prepared place. It's a promised place. It's a specific meeting place. He is a meeting place. And then he is also in this place. It's a peace-filled place of sanctuary. The word sanctuary is a place where you can go and be comforted from tribulation and the pains and the sorrows and the endurance that it takes to live in this life. Verse 4 says there's not going to be death or sorrow or crying or pain. God will personally not send someone, but he himself will be our comfort. And that's actually spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He is the God of all comfort. Right now, in this place, in this world that we live in, he comforts us so that we can comfort those who have not experienced the comfort that we have already experienced. He comforts us so that we can comfort others. But then he will comfort us personally together. It's a place where the old things will have been removed. And so the question for me is how can, in this peace-filled sanctuary that's been promised, how is it going to be possible for there to be no more sorrow or death or crying or pain? I get the no more death part. I'll tell you that. I understand the no more death part because we're going to be rose from the dead. I mean, that's, that's the truth. We're going to be risen from the dead. But I don't know about the no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. 
all of us will have at least one person, one thing that never really felt resolved. And then we'll go to be in heaven. And if I remember those things, because I'm going to remember stuff, how is that going to be no more painful to me? I'm glad you asked. In verse 5, he goes on to say, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. It is accomplished. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Just in case you don't know what that means, I'm the beginning and the end. I will give of the first of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So he says, if you're wondering how this is possible, I want you to write these things down. These are faithful and true things that you're going to need to hold on to. Someone ever in a class tells you to write something down, you're going to need this for the test, right? And that's what God's saying. You're going to need this for the test because this thing is true right now but you won't experience it until then. You're going to have to pass through death into life, but you're going to live until you die and pass to life. And so you're going to need this in order to anchor your soul because you will be tested. And so this is all possible because God is making all things new. Now, in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, the, the, the writer there, Luke, He's already spoken about this, though he wasn't talking directly about this. He kind of, in passing, mentions a truth that I think is important. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. I'm going to start in verse 19. As Peter is preaching, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. So Jesus has been received into heaven until the times of restoration. What happens if you take an old car and you restore it? The idea is you're making all things new. You want to make it like it is new again. Now, it's still going to be an old car. It's going to be 4,000 pounds heavier than the car you drive right now. It's still going to wear out. But the idea of restoring all things to new is that until he restores things, Jesus is up in heaven until that restoration takes place. But it's a promised restoration. John chapter 3 and verse 35. Oops. Need to go to the left. To the left. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So he's going to restore all things, and they are already placed in the hand of Jesus. But what are the all things that he's talking about making new? We know from this passage in Revelation, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And essentially, he's going to reveal the new meeting place where we can meet with God. 
but is this something that we have to wait for or is it something that's already done? And I would say, yes. And most people don't like that answer because they want a, it's this or this. They want a black and white. It is black and white. Here's the deal. Jesus, when he said to Telestai on the cross in John, I think it's chapter 20 or 21, he says, it is finished. To Telestai in the Greek, it is accomplished. Everything that I came to do is done. Because of his work leading up to and on the cross and then his resurrection, the work that was needed to be accomplished, the restoration of all things was done. And yet God's patience with us and him offering salvation inside of time, there's a, it's a limited time offer, but when it's over, the things that he accomplished on the cross will then be revealed as if they had already been done. He says, I am the beginning, I am the end. But in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, Paul learned something, and so he wrote it to the Corinthian church who was living in this time where things didn't quite uh, settle yet. And in verse 16 of chapter 5, he says, therefore, right now, from now on, we Christians regard no one according to the outward flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer that way. Therefore, if anyone is presently in Christ, no matter what they look like on the outside, he is a new creation, a new creation, a new being, no longer a child of death, but now a child of the living God. Old things have passed away. Have you noticed that? Behold, all things have become new. If you are in Christ today and you're experiencing sorrow and pain and temptation to sin and you're battling and feeling like you're beat down, we don't fight this battle because we want to be victorious. We fight this battle because the victory is already won and we're trying to walk in it. You fight from a place of victory. How much does it change a soldier's attitude if they know they're going to win before they go in? How much would it change your attitude about walking with Christ daily if you walked with him, not thinking, I hope I do okay today, but instead you walk as if knowing that your victory has already been accomplished and now you just got to walk forward trusting that whatever God brings your way, no matter how the battle looks, that victory is already yours. It is. I know some of you were fighting a battle this morning because Satan doesn't want you to go to church. He doesn't want you to be encouraged. He doesn't want you to be built up. He wants you to be stuck in your rut. But victory is already yours whether you show up or not. Now you can be reminded that that victory has already been accomplished. And that's why I come, not just because I'm preaching. Last Sunday I wasn't here. Guess where I was? I was in the house of the Lord, somewhere else. I was with people that are trusting in the promises that are not yet from our side of heaven accomplished. They don't look, it does not look like righteousness reigns right now. It does not look like I don't have to fear anything. What it looks like is Satan's winning, but he does not win. 
and he knows his time is short. So he's throwing a death roll on creation right now. Birth pangs. Society's fighting back and forth. And in the meantime, God is still on the throne. And so all that to say, you are a new creation and you will be a new creation. God is already preparing a place. And if it took him just six days to create this, what we've made a cesspool, what do you think he's going to create in 2,000 years? How, How awesome is the place that he's prepared for us? He's the beginning. He is the end. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says this about this uh, being the alpha and the omega. Some of you have seen my tattoo on my leg. It's a Greek alpha and a Greek omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But the idea is that he is the beginning of time and he will say when it's over. He gets the final word. But it's not just about creation. Hebrews chapter 12 says this to us who believe. And I didn't turn there, I just talked. But it says, therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, not looking to ourselves for strength, but looking to Jesus, the author. He's the one that wrote it. And the finisher, he's the one that will complete it. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. And now that he's accomplished what he set forth to accomplish, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's sitting. He's not standing up in heaven going, I hope it goes okay hope everything's, I hope, don't do that. He's not like a mom watching a kid at the playground. They're climbing that ladder again. That's like four feet off the ground. We went to this playground that's in St. Jen and it's awesome. And it's got all these really accessible things. It's actually made for for kids that are, uh, that are in wheelchairs and stuff like that. It's got different options. And, but what I love about playgrounds anymore is that underneath them, they've got like this softest rubber ever. It's not, when I was growing up, it wasn't any longer gravel. It was kind of transitioning to stabbing mulch. And then it became like the tire stuff that's, I don't, it's got wires in it. And get your tetanus shot and go play on the rubber tires. But now it's even more soft. It's the the rubber pads. So my son, who is four and pretty much a roly-poly, he's legs and cheeks, got all the padding he needs, climbs up this high off the ground, and my wife's like, and I'm like, there's not even rocks under there. He'll be fine. He's going to die. He's jumping out of a plane in her eyes. But all that to say is God's not up there like a mom stressing every little detail about her kids. God's up there going, hey, if if they trust me, they're going to be just fine. Rub some dirt in it and keep moving. You know, more like a dad, but not the dad that like doesn't pay attention at all. That, that's the other side of it, right? We, we kind of, on both sides of the pendulum, all that to say that he's the author and he's the finisher. And, and that doesn't mean we don't have to endure. Endurance takes strength and trust 
and daily trust and grace. All that to say, he says, uh, I'm offering you free water. He, he says there in the end of verse 6, and back here in chapter 21, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now think about this. All throughout the Bible, God's providing water for his people. Why? Well, because in the desert, which is where the Israelites became a nation, uh, water means life. It's a picture of life. But he's not actually talking about water, but water is actually revealing who he is. He's giving free water to those who are thirsty. And in Exodus chapter 17, they're in the, the wilderness and and God tells Moses, I want you to go and I want you to speak to the rock. And out of this rock where they have no water in the desert, I'm going to make an oasis. And I'm going to provide water for you. I'm going to sustain your life even though you're in this dry and thirsty land. But then in John chapter 4, Jesus meets with a woman at a well. And when he meets with her there, he he's, shows up, he's parched, he's been walking a long way. And there's this woman drawing water from there. And he says to her, woman, can I have some of this water? And she says to him, how come you're talking to me? I'm a Samaritan, which is a whole nother conversation. But they wouldn't talk. Jews and Samaritans wouldn't talk. But she says that to him, like, why are you asking me for water? I'm a dirty Samaritan in your eyes. And he says, if you knew who you were talking to, then you would ask me for water and I would give to you. And she's like, you don't even have anything to draw water out of the well with. And he says, if you ask from me, I will give you living water, which is funny because when you draw water out of a well, it's not living water. Living water is like a river. It's moving water. It's not nasty in a non-moving place where stuff grows in it. It's not stagnant. He's asking for water from a stagnant well, and she's, he's telling her, I can give you living water. And she's going, you think your water's better than Jacob's well? Come on, this is like the well that he dug. And what he's pointing out is that I'm able to satisfy your thirst because then he, he goes on to say, whoever drinks of the water in this well will have to come back to this well over and over again. They're gonna be thirsty again. But if you drink of the water that I give, you will never thirst again. And all that to say that when we show up to heaven, Jesus promises to satisfy our real thirst when nothing else has or nothing else will. We are thirsty, and if you don't think so, then why do advertisements work so well on us? Why do you think Google is trying to titillate our appetites by showing us the stuff that we've Googled? We're all thirsty for something, and if you've ever noticed that everything that we thirst for in this life promises to satisfy us, and then it doesn't, and then we need the next thing? Have you ever noticed that? So when we get to heaven, he says, whoever comes to me and is thirsty, I will satisfy them with living water. That's his promise. So when we get there, we won't be watching commercials because we will drink water from the well of salvation, and we'll be satisfied. No longer will it be hard to rest and just sit on the porch and watch creation. We will be satisfied by what God provides. We will be in ultimate contentment, and I love that. 
because I struggle with contentment every day. But when I'm really content in the Lord, what I'm experiencing is a foretaste of what heaven will be like. And I love this because turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is the first passage I ever taught in front of a group. Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes. I I thought, oh, this will be an easy passage. And I just last night learned what it actually meant. And I'm talking like 10 years later. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus tells these Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you. Oh, how happy is the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It already is the kingdom of heaven those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, that's future tense, comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is literal. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's that filling we just read about. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs already is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So verse 7 goes on to say in Revelation 21, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. So what we just read in Matthew chapter 5. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. I will be their God and they shall be my children. On that day, we will not just be joining up as part of the community of God. We will be the literal and we are already the literal family of God. We just read in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And at this day, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God. He shall be my son But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers are those who practice witchcraft, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So verse 7 is to those who overcome, those who arrive having overcame, They've already been mentioned, though. How do we overcome? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 tells us how we overcome. By the blood of the Lamb, we've been cleansed, we've been washed. We have victory because of His blood making us new. Cleansing of of our former iniquities. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony of Jesus. Telling others about the good news. And, he says, they overcome because they don't love this life so much that they're afraid to die. And because of that, they don't, in Revelation 12, succumb to 
being deceived by the Antichrist or taking the mark of the beast so it would be easier. They instead choose to trust in God. Romans chapter 12, verse 21 says, to the people who were in Rome, and I've already described multiple weeks what Caesar Nero was doing to Christians, but in there he says, don't be overcome by evil, Christians, but overcome evil by practicing what is good on those who are your enemies. Don't be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil by being obedient and doing good. And 1 Peter chapter 2 takes it one step further. 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. You want to silence those you disagree with on Facebook? Ignore them and do good. You want to put to silence those who are foolish and loud? Do good. They will be silenced by your testimony, by the way that you live, not by your arguments. You can argue with them all day long. They will speak more, not less. Put to silence foolish men by doing good to overcome evil. So to those who overcome, he he says, you're going to be called sons of God, and I will be your God forever. But to those, verse 8, who arrive dead on on arrival, they arrive still dead in their sins and trespasses. Romans chapter 8 says this. And we're getting there, I promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are in debt, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. There's that idea again. And so life obeying the flesh equals death over and over. Life obeying the spirit equals life and sonship. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, just to put a little exclamation point on what he's saying. Those who, uh, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, those who extort will, inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So to remember that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom, but also to remember that we were once among that number. But you've been washed You've been cleansed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So he's talking about this in Revelation 21. He says, those that practice such things will have their part in the lake. We're not talking about Lake of the Ozarks. We're talking about the fiery lake of brimstone, which is the second death. And scripture teaches that if you are born once, then you will die twice. If you are born twice, then you will die once. And, and the reality is we will die outside of Christ. We will die physically and then you die spiritually. But if you die to yourself in this life, you're born and then you are born again, John chapter three, then you will see the kingdom of heaven, but no one that hasn't been born again will see the kingdom of heaven. So that being said, God's promise is not slack. When we show up to this new heaven, this new earth, this heavenly dwelling place that he's going to descend from heaven to earth. It's going to be a physical place. Number one, we'll need to be comforted. We're going to show up having endured hard things, but he will comfort. He will wipe away tears. To some of us, he'll comfort us because we experience much persecution. To some of us, he'll have to comfort us because the reality of the kingdom did not set in for us in this life and we'll have lived most of our lives living for the world and giving up our soul in ways, not fully devoting our heart and our strength and our minds to the work of God. And we'll get there and go, I wasted my life, saved and yet a wasted life. But for some of us, we'll be comforted because will have ran hard until the end. Either way, we'll be comforted. Number two, we'll be thirsty for righteousness. That's why he offers us rivers of living water because we'll show up parched. We'll show up still thirsting for the thing that we were always looking forward to like Abraham. Number three, the kingdom will be ours. We'll be inheriting a kingdom as if we were sons of God, not just those who showed up to the party. But those things, three things are already true now before we arrive. Jesus said it is finished while on the cross. This was part of what he has already accomplished. So 2 Peter chapter 3 as we close. 2 Peter chapter 3. He, tries, he writes to this church to stir them up by way of reminder. And in verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. They will walk according to their own desires, and they will say, where's the promise of Jesus coming? For since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And verse 5 says, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed back in the past perished being flooded with water. They were warned. God's going to judge the world. Verse seven, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the word of God, God keeps holding it together, are now reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. 
It's not been a long time in his eyes. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is instead patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, blameless, and consider that the patience of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to his wisdom given him, he's written to you. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Consider that the patience of the Lord means salvation, for those who don't know. And so as we begin, we're going to take communion this morning. But I, I want to talk about this because Jesus told us to take communion as a way to interact with him, though he's left and we can't go where he is yet. And yet we're practicing this meal that will ultimately be fulfilled until then. And so when we get to be with him, there will be a feast, there will be a time, there will be a meal, there will be communion, interaction, the thing he died to accomplish. But until then, we practice it looking forward to the real thing. And so this morning, uh, we'll sing a song, and I want you guys to come up and take the elements. And as you take the elements, I want you to recognize that we are doing something by faith. We're eating a meal with our Savior who will one day tabernacle physically with us and we will be permanently dwelling with him. He will be our God, we will be his children and until that's completely fulfilled, this is the dress rehearsal. You ever go to, go to a wedding and they have the dress rehearsal? We're showing up and we're taking this. And we, here we take it monthly because we're practicing the ultimate fulfillment of this. And so... Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Thank you for this meal that you provided for us. Uh, no doubt these little cups of uh, juice will not satisfy our thirst, only you will. But we thank you for what it means that you've cleansed us, you've washed us in your blood. We thank you for your body, the broken on our behalf, so that we could live a life where we don't have to be broken or judged for our sins. We look forward to the new heaven. We look forward to the new earth. We look forward to living in a place where righteousness dwells. But until then, Lord, help us to endure. Help us to be diligent. Help us to live from a place knowing that our victory has already been secured. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. Help us to live in a way that's worthy of the sacrifice you made. In Jesus' name, amen.